Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of The Rest is History. We are here in the heart of Amsterdam, surrounded by bicycles and trams and thousands of people. And we are here, Tom, thanks to WISE, the account that lets you send, spend and receive money internationally. Tom, we are going on a Dutch adventure. We are. To learn about yeah, the history. heart of the Netherlands. <laughs> oh, I really hoped that wasn't going to happen, but he has done his <laughs> Dutch accent. So we are going on a Dutch adventure to learn about the history of Amsterdam. And Tom, thanks to WISE, we'll be spending like locals. We will. So yes, we're here in Amsterdam and we thought you love the Netherlands. You always go on about how you love the Dutch and Dutch history. Well, and Holland, obviously. So we thought it would be a fun thing to do to come to this corner of Northwestern Europe and to tell the story of the Netherlands through the history of Amsterdam and through a selection of buildings. So you've chosen your favorite historic sites in the city of Amsterdam, and we are going to be exploring the themes of capitalism, of liberalism, globalization, uh, re- the religious tolerance of the Dutch. Yeah, because you, you say that this is, this is um, an episode about the Netherlands as well as about Amsterdam. But Dominic, I would go further and say it's, it's a history of the world. Amsterdam is one of those cities that has profoundly shaped the entire course of global history. Well, don't people sometimes say this is the great birthplace, or one of the great birthplaces, along with, I suppose, London, Genoa, Venice, I don't know, of capitalism, of modern international capitalism. Absolutely. And we will be um, exploring one of the great kind of shrines to that uh, emergence of capitalism. But I, I think of all the cities that have you know, played outsized roles in global history, been one of those places that have, have altered and changed the course of world history. Amsterdam, for me, is, I think, my favourite because it's, it's the least grandiose. It's the least pompous. Dare I say, it's the, perhaps the most comfortable. Yeah. And that's a very unusual thing in a kind of world-shaking city to yes. have. Um, and what makes Amsterdam even more extraordinary is that it seems in some ways so unsuited by geography for its role. So you compared um, Amsterdam to London as one of the, the two kind of great birthplaces, really, of, of modern capitalism. Yeah. And London is obviously very well suited by geography to be a great city because it's lowest bridging point on the Thames. It's yes. open to the sea. But Amsterdam, the clue is in the name. We, ha- we are currently in Dam Square, which is the kind of ancient heart of the city because a dam here was built over a river called the Amstel. But when we call it a river, it wasn't really. It was really a kind of, it was an extended bog. Yeah. And all this area around here, I mean, going back into, you know, the Iron Age, then to the Roman period, early medieval period, it was really just a series of marshes. And we have records, say, from my great friend Pliny the I Elder. I knew Pliny would come into yeah. it somewhere. So, so, he has, so he served up here and he describes seeing people kind of perched on man-made island, things that are called terps, and the, the seawater's coming in and retreating twice a day. And so he says, you know, he, he, he asks, are these, you know, is this to be reckoned sea or is it to be reckoned land? Yeah. And it, it, it's an open question. Well, obviously, the low countries, you know, it's below sea level, isn't it? Yeah. And so it's not an obvious place to settle. So then why, why is it that people are settling here? 
And the reason is because the soil is unbelievably good. So you have peat, which is good for right, farming. Right. But the problem with that is that if you start draining it of water, which settle, you know, the more you settle here, the more you're doing that. So it shrinks. Yeah. And so then you start sinking below the sea level. Right. And Amsterdam is actually, I think, about two meters below the sea. And then, of course, the danger of flooding becomes even greater. And the only way that you can combat that danger of flooding is to get together and, and kind of form a collective and start building dams and dikes. Hence Dam Square. Hence Dam Square. And so Amsterdam is, is very, it's, it's a very inhospitable geographical position for a city. Yeah. But the city emerges because the only way you can settle here is to form a collective. And so what, what basically seems to have happened is that around 1150, 1160, there, were, there was really terrible flooding here. And so the only way that people could survive was really to start building kind of collective enterprises, dams and, and, and so on. So you have drainage cows start to be dug from the beginning of the 13th century. Um, and then by about 1250, maybe 1275, people are, are digging dikes along the banks of the, um, of, of the Amstel and then they, they put a dam across it. And where we are now in Dam Square is exactly the spot where they built the dam. So the Amstel back in early Middle Ages was flowing exactly where So it's so late now. by the standards of European capitals, isn't it? I mean, yeah. what are we, 13th century? Yeah. I mean, I suppose Madrid is a late capital. But if you think of so many of the great cities of Europe, Amsterdam is a real parvenu, Tom. It absolutely is. And it, it remains that pretty much for most of the Middle Ages. Its wealth essentially, to begin with, comes from fish. Right. How glamorous. Well, so, so herring in particular. Yeah. And the Dutch have discovered a particular way of pickling herring that enables it to survive longer and actually makes it tastier. And so they corner that particular market. Just for those people who are wondering, we were talking about how glamorous Amsterdam is. And we are, Tom, you've picked a location that is right by the bins. Yes, the, so, the bins um, have just arrived. So yeah, if, you, if, you're, <laughs> um, if you're coming on your own trip to Amsterdam, I wouldn't recommend going to the bins unless you want to redo the full Tom Holland. Well, you know, we're, we're going into the dark underbelly of Amsterdam as Lovely. well as looking simply at the... The, yeah. the beauties of it. So 13th century, we have Amsterdam. It's a fishing, it's a kind of fishing community. It's still very muddy. It's still very boggy. There doesn't seem to be very much that would make it a place worth visiting. And then something extraordinary happens, Dominic. Well, Tom, you've something, really been... dare I say, miraculous. Miraculous. Wow. You've really been selling it so far with all the talk of uh, preserved herrings and whatnot <laughs> and, and taking me to the, see the bins. But it's only onwards and upwards from here, isn't it? it so we're going to go and see this miraculous thing that you're talking about. The very about. sight of it. Very exciting. Let's go. So we've just uh, ducked into this lovely little cafe here. Tom needs a bit of sustenance because, um, you know... It's excitement, the sacral moment that's now, approaching. So, Tom, I'll, let me get these. Uh, now, your usual is, what is it? A strawberries and cream <laughs> skinny frappuccino. <laughs> is it? Is that could what I, you normally have? Could I have um, um, a, an espresso, please, Tom? Tom's having an espresso and I'll have an Americano, please. Uh, double, please. Tom's gone for the double espresso, my word. He's more of a man than I thought. And Tom, what a great opportunity this is to use our wise cards that allow us to spend like a local. Unbelievably useful. And actually, Dominic, yeah. um, bearing in mind what we're about to go and see, yeah. uh, but very opposite because um, the next place, it's all about international tourism. Is it? Yeah. So how useful a wise card would have been in the Middle Ages, as we will shortly find out. Genuinely miraculous history podcasting here. So I'm going to tap my wise card. This is an exciting moment. And perfect. All done. Miraculous. 
Thank you very much. Well, Dominic, actually, yeah, that really was easy. Um, I haven't used WISE before, but I can now see why so many businesses and people, I think 16 million, maybe over. Yeah, because you can spend really easily and you get notifications, Tom, to your phone, which you would, I know you'd love that. Because I love getting notifications on my phone. Yeah. The thing about WISE, you can spend in 40 different currencies. And if you're on the go, as you so often are with your travels, and you don't have the local currency in your WISE account, Tom, they will auto-convert it at the mid-market exchange rate with absolutely no markups and no hidden fees. Because I hate a markup and I hate a hidden fee. Well, you, you don't so have to worry. So wise, wise is the card for me. Yeah. And also, Dominic, no maths. No, no so maths. So you'd be a big fan of that. I mean, that. that's, that's very good. So we um, are now, uh, we've come to the second location that I've chosen. Yeah. And you will see that it is the Amsterdam Dungeon. Yeah which I think is a, a franchise organized by the London Dungeon. So it it's kind of basically waxworks of people being tortured, that yeah. kind of thing. So you may think, well, why have I brought you I here? I actually genuinely enjoy those things, Tom. So, um, <laughs> well, I, I, I'm going to ruin your sense of enjoyment now by saying that we have come here not because of the London Dungeon itself, but because of what stood here, right. which was a church, Dominic. Okay. So um, we were talking before about how it was that Amsterdam starts to emerge from just being a kind of collection of people camped out next to a bog going fishing yeah. for, for herring. There was an awful lot of herrings involved yes. in that early sequence. I mean, it's quite a rough place, but it's also pious, as you would expect for people kind of living very close to the elements. So there's a definite sense, I think, which runs throughout the history of Amsterdam. Descartes, who came to stay here, yeah. kind of famously said that um, God made the world, but the Dutch made Holland. And there is this sense that the ability to win land from the sea is a kind of marker of, of divine favor. Right. So Amsterdam, although it's rough, is, is a pretty pious place. But what really turbocharges the sense of Amsterdam as a godly city in the Middle Ages is a spectacular miracle, Dominic, which happened on the very spot where we are now looking at the, um, at the Amsterdam dungeon. So this, this took place in 1345, and it was called the Miracle of Amsterdam. And it took place on uh, the Tuesday before Palm Sunday. So kind of the, the week before Holy Week. And there's an old man and he's quietly dying in his house. And the priest comes, gives him um, final sacrament. Um, and he takes the, uh, the consecrated bread on his tongue and then he vomits, Dominic. And he pukes it up and the holy, the holy sacrament is in the, in the puke. So difficult to know what to do. So they decide, well, well, we'll chuck it on the fire. That's probably the best way to get rid of it. Um, and they chuck it on the fire and it doesn't burn. Right. And they try it again and it still doesn't burn. And so they clean it of the of the sick. Yeah. And they take it to the local priest and he's he's amazed and thinks that this is, you know, hi highly supernatural. Um and they say that it's a miracle. And so they build a church around it. Um and then the church burns down and still it doesn't burn. Cranky. The sacrament still survives. And then the church burns down again. And still it doesn't burn down. Yep. So this is an absolute proof that this is a spectacular miracle. And so Amsterdam becomes a great, great center of pilgrimage. And actually all the kind of streets around here, they're, you know, they're kind of holy road, holy place, all this kind of thing. So even though this is absolutely the heart of kind of um, the, the modern day tourist heart of the city, um, there are trace elements of that. So this is 14th, 15th century. And yes. this is absolutely not a question of, a sort of herring fishing town in the middle of nowhere desperately needing to attract tourists. I think that would be an unduly cynical okay. approach. Um, no, because I don't think that you'd be getting, um, say, almost 100,000 people a year if it was a total fraud. 
No. Okay. They'd all be coming here with their equivalent of their wise cards, ready to spend. You know, I mean, some really very heavyweight figures came, including an emperor of, uh, a future emperor of um, the Holy Roman Empire. Oh, Maximilian. Maximilian yeah. in uh, 1489. So it's, it's, a very, it's, it's a very, very Catholic city. Right. Great center of Catholic pilgrimage. And so that then focuses the question, how is it that this incredibly Catholic city comes to be one of the most famous centers of, of Protestantism? Well, Tom, you mentioned Maximilian of, of Austria. So at this point, there is no country called the Netherlands or Holland, is there? This is part of the great Habsburg inheritance, right? This is part of the great enormous Habsburg domain of the 16th century. So Charles V, Philip II, this is the what used to be called the Spanish Netherlands. Am I right? Absolutely. So listeners may remember the episode we did with Bart van Loo on, on, Burgundy. on Burgundy. And Burgundy and all that kind of conglomeration of, of the Low Countries, which includes what would today be Belgium as well as the Netherlands, comes part of that inheritance. Yeah. The thing about Amsterdam is that because it's on the periphery and because it's been won from the sea, its feudal obligations are unclear. The Bishop of Utrecht, the, the local Lord of the Amstel, yeah. um, and the Count of Holland are all kind of fighting over it. And in the end, the Count of, of, of Holland kind of claims it. But the city fathers are pretty independent. And so Charles V, who is um, having to deal with Luther, who's popped up by this stage. And so the Reformation is kicking off. Yeah. You know, he's, he's saying to all the kind of the, the city authorities across the lowlands, um, stamp this out. But actually, the, um, the city fathers here in Amsterdam aren't keen on doing that. And basically, that's because it's, it's a port, it's an open city, it's always depended on welcoming people to come here. Yeah. And they don't really want to, to kind of dig too deep. And this will become very much a kind of Amsterdam tradition that things that are on the cusp of legality, you kind of tolerate. Right. Because of the port, because of the sense of it being a melting pot, I suppose. Yeah. That if you're too top down, you will squash the creativity and the free exchange on which Amsterdam presumably depends. And also the sense of a, a coherent civic culture, because without that, you can't keep the, the, the dams and the dikes okay. and everything maintained and draining it of water. So there isn't actually much persecution of the Protestants as they start to, to come here. There's one exception, which is the Anabaptists, who are very badly behaved at this stage. So uh, famously, they take over Munster and there's yeah. all kinds of carnage and horror there. Yeah. There is an Anabaptist uprising here at the same time in 1535, um, and a load of Anabaptists take their clothes off and run around, run around the town. And they capture Dam Square, where we've just been. And they storm the city hall and they kill one of the city mayors. So this doesn't go down well. And the Anabaptists, when this uprising gets suppressed, all get horribly killed. They kind yeah. of, their chests are cut open and their beating hearts are, are pulled out in front of them. Um, and they're drawn and quartered. Um, so Anabaptists are stamped on. But the Calvinists, so the followers of Jean Calvin, yeah. John Calvin, um, who we talked about actually in our the Swiss episode, didn't we? we in we the did. World Cup. Yep. They're much quieter. They're much less prone to taking their clothes off and killing well, I, mares. I see here from your notes, you've written the, the three words, much less barking. So <laughs> that's bad news for our Anabaptist listeners. <laughs> yes. Well, the Anabaptists do kind of calm down. But by the standards of the mid-16th century, Calvinists are easier for the city fathers to tolerate. And so basically, the city fathers in Amsterdam are... are, are it's still absolutely majority Catholic, but they're a kind of growing Calvinist population and they hope that they can kind of balance both sides. Yeah. However, events beyond Amsterdam's borders make that impossible. Because in um, 1566, you have what uh, the, the Bildensturm, 
That's beautiful Dutch, Tom. Well done. The uh, kind of great fury of iconoclasm, yeah. um, which really kicks off in Antwerp, where there are a lot of Calvinists, far more yeah. Calvinists than in Amsterdam. And they go, go kind of berserk, ransacking everything, pulling down icons and stuff. And actually in Ghent as well. So again, we had Bart was on our show, wasn't he? Talking about Belgium and the... Uh, and Jan van Eyck. Jan van Eyck. And that only gets saved because they hide it. Okay, so, the, the Ghent altarpiece. The Ghent altarpiece. In Amsterdam, it's less, again, it's less serious. So there's a woman who takes her slipper off and throws it at an icon of the Virgin. Um, iconoclasts smash some stained glass. But again, the authorities in, in Amsterdam do not react to this with violent oppression. In fact, they do the opposite. They kind of try and negotiate with Calvinists and they say that um, they can hold services outside the city walls. And this is their, their approach to the, 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 this kind of wave of iconoclasm. Right. But this is not what the imperial authorities are allowing to happen because by now Charles V has been succeeded by Philip II. Yes. Who, as English listeners will know, is the person who sends the Armada. Yeah. Very, very keen on um, stamping out Protestantism completely. And he basically orders a strategy of outright oppression. And this precipitates an enormous revolt from... Uh, the famous Dutch revolt. The famous Dutch revolt, which is initially focused in southern Holland, but spreads northwards. And Amsterdam, as this great center of Catholic uh, pilgrimage, is really the kind of the holdout. It, it doesn't side with this revolt. So that by 1572, Amsterdam is pretty much the only city left in Spanish hands. And so the Duke of Alba, who is the great, you know, the Iron Duke, this yeah. terrifying Spanish soldier, warlord, who um, is charged with the repression of the Dutch revolt, he comes here and he makes Amsterdam his base. And Catholic refugees from the, the kind of the rising tide of Protestant success elsewhere in Holland, they kind of come here. But also coming here are refugees from Antwerp, okay. which has been sacked very, very brutally by the Spanish so a lot of Calvinist refugees come here. And by 1578, the city is, dare I say, uh, a kindling box, Dominic. A tinderbox, box. A tinderbox. A tinderbox. All it requires is the spark. So the spark comes on the 26th of May. But when it does come, what the Dutch called the alteration, which right. is a kind yeah. of wonderful euphemism. But it's not so much of a euphemism because it is actually a bloodless a bloodless transfer of power from Catholics to Protestants. So the, all the Catholic members of the city council Again, so Dutch, they get put on barges. Right. <laughs> you know, and they, they sail off and the Franciscans get kicked out. The monasteries and the convents get converted to other uses. So um, orphanages, prisons, yeah. that kind of thing. The churches are whitewashed. So it's a proper Protestant revolution. Yeah, it, it really is. And the, the oldest church in, um, in Amsterdam, it, it gets whitewashed and renamed the, the Oude Kirke, right. the, the, the old church. And all the processions and ceremonies and commemorations of the miracle of Amsterdam yeah. are closed down. So the miracle church is transformed into a tourist trap. <laughs> yes. And so, <laughs> and so it's, it's decreed that it will be turned into, into a, 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 a center of waxworks. <laughs> right. Very good. And so this very, very Catholic city, pretty much overnight, has been rebranded as one of the strongholds of, of, um, of Protestantism and, and specifically Calvinism. Then the question is, well, what happens to the surviving Catholics? Well, because I bet you've got something up your sleeve, have you? I have. We're Excellent. going to go to um, a very quiet and peaceful location that will enable us to answer exactly that question. Brilliant. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We've come to this lovely 
um, oasis of calm in the center of Amsterdam. And Tom, explain to us where we are. We, we are um, in the Begeinhof. And so uh, a hofier is a courtyard with almshouses around it. So yeah. this is the only medieval hofier that has survived. So it, it, it dates back to the 14th century. Um, they're privately funded. Um, they are veiled from the street. So to get in here, you've just come through yeah. kind of a single door. If anyone has been to a, a kind of Oxford or Cambridge College, it's that kind of yeah. vibe. But, but but privately funded and it's f for charitable purposes. So these are arms houses. Yeah, that and then generally for women. I mean, not, not not always, but in this case, absolutely for women because the the beguines are communities of lay women. So they're not nuns. They haven't kind of vowed um, chastity or poverty yeah. but they, they, they swear themselves to virginity and you know they, they're free to leave whenever they like so it's so, kind of begin in French isn't it the, yes um, exactly so so these houses are sort of 17th century but that house there the, the wooden house am I right in thinking that's the oldest house in, I think in the is. city I think it is yes because there was um, there was a fire in, in uh, 1521 and they introduced a ban on building wooden houses so it must predate that right so I think it's one of two um, wooden houses left in the city. So, so yeah, so kind of fa fantastic um, relic. But the reason for coming here isn't just that um, you know it's, it, it's a famously beautiful spot, quiet spot, um, but that it 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 focuses in on some of the kind of the paradoxes and tensions of the response of the Dutch and particularly of Amsterdamers to what they call the alteration, the changeover from Catholic to to Protestant. So Catholic worship is banned. And so this is a problem for the, 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 the Beguines, yeah. you know, who are a, a Catholic order. So we are, we're sitting on a bench next to um, the church, which is 15th century. This gets taken from the Beguines and it stands empty for a couple of decades um, after the alteration. And then in 1607, it's handed over to the English. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so it's given to English speaking Presbyterians. Right. And, um, I mean, if you go inside, anyone who is familiar with 17th century churches in Britain would immediately recognize it's hung with with English flags, Scottish flags, Union Jacks. To this day, it remains aligned with the Church of Scotland, so the Presbyterians and the Church right, of Scotland. Right. But the Beguines are not expelled. And the reason for that is that the Amsterdamers have great respect for property law and the Beguines own all the houses. So the church be confiscated, but not their houses. So the Hoffier remains their private property, and they continue to be buried inside the church even once the, uh, the English Presbyterians have taken it over. Right. And then in 1665, what they do is they take two of these private houses, and they knock them together, and they build a chapel. And inside the chapel, they show uh, kind of wonderful artwork illustrating the miracle of Amsterdam. Um, so this great shrine that has been knocked down that we were just just visiting. But I thought you said Catholicism was uh, banned. Right. So this is again <laughs> this distinctive Amsterdam approach to what is legal and what isn't. The Beguines approach the council and say, "Look, this is what we're doing," and the council's response is to say, "Okay, you can worship there, provided that it's hidden away." provided that it doesn't look like a chapel. So it has to continue looking like houses. So there's that sense in which they're simultaneously saying, yes, okay, it's legal, it's fine, go ahead with it, while at the same time saying, well, it isn't really. Oh, so this is what we're looking at. So this is what we're looking at now. Because I was wondering the stained glass windows yeah. in these, what appear to be these, these townhouses. Yeah. And that's actually a chapel. And that is absolutely the chapel. And so this kind of provides a template for what is going on elsewhere in the city. So actually, uh, there's, there's a Hoffier built in 1614, which 
also serves as a refuge for Beguines. Right. Um, you know, there aren't chapels there, but Beguines settle there in Hofier. Um, and also for kind of radical Protestant sects still. So our friends, the Anabaptists, oh, yeah, they're, they're still lurking they're around. Still around. So they have their kind of, their secret churches and their their, their Hofiers. Um, Mennonites, who are a kind of another radical Protestant sect. But more generally, the Hofiers, these courtyards that are built with charitable intent, yeah. this is a kind of impulse that survives the Reformation. So right the way up until the 19th century, there was famously a baron who got locked in his own strong room, counting his money. And he made a vow that he would um, build a hoffier if he got out and didn't starve to death. And he did manage to get out. So he built a hoffier. And if you come to Amsterdam and you want a kind of a way of, of getting to grips with the kind of the history and the character of the city, I think there is no better way than to do a, a tour of the hoffiers. And you have yeah. to know where they are because they're often invisible. They just look kind of little doorways, quiet doorways. So unless you know where you're going, you'd never know that there are these kind of incredible spaces hidden away from because the street. Because the point of the Hofier is to be turned in inwards away from the street so people can't see this these terrible religious practices that you're getting up to and you're not infringing on the civic culture, which is overtly Protestant. There is that, but, but there's also a kind of a value of inwardness, of privacy, a lack of public flourish that is expressive of the civic culture of the city, I think. Right. This sense that the domestic is valuable and precious yeah. and something that is worth cultivating yeah. is absolutely a part of, I think, of what Amsterdam gives to the modern world. Well, you talked about this, didn't you, in the episode we did about the Dutch maid. Remember the yes. maid of Holland and the uh, sort of uh, the cleanliness, the domesticity? That's a very, very sort of golden age of the Dutch Republic kind of ethos, isn't it? Yes, and so we'll go and look at um, a particularly spectacular uh, example of a Dutch townhouse in the second episode. But I think that these these courtyards are that they're a very powerful, striking, and I think moving expression of that impulse towards valuing privacy and yeah. valuing the domestic, which is something I think you know pretty new by the standards of of, of what had gone before. Yeah. However, it would not at all do Dominic to imply that um, everyone in Amsterdam is uh, going inwards because 16th going into the 17th century, even as hoffiers are being built and this sense of privacy is being valued, at the same time, Amsterdam is becoming the capital of globalization. Brilliant. Well, let's leave the Beginhof behind and go and, um, go and find your next location, which I think is a much more outward looking one. It couldn't be more outward looking, Dominic. So Tom, we've just walked down the street from the Beginhof. And we've come to another courtyard. Um, this is a courtyard of a very, very different looking building, much grander. And, and this, this is the building that tells us the story, doesn't it, of how Amsterdam goes from being basically a bit of a backwater to being the engine of globalization. Yeah. So in the 17th century, I mean, this, as you say, Amsterdam, an obscure backwater, a place that's still at war with the world's largest empire. But it, it becomes the birthplace of the modern, the modern world. So it becomes the richest city in the world, it becomes the most globally connected, and it develops aspects of capitalism that are still completely with us to this day. And this courtyard that we're in now, with this kind of incredibly, by the standards of Amsterdam, grandiose architecture. So Tom, we're just, we're just uh, let's just get out of the way of these uh, tourists. And so, so yep. this is, a, for those people who can't see it, which is basically everybody. Um, <laughs> That's the magic of podcasts. <laughs> that is the nature of podcasting. So it's a, a, a red brick building. Um, it is, what is it, three stories tall. It is by the standards of 
Dutch architecture at the time very grand. And this is the headquarters, I believe, of the Verenigde Ostindische Compagnie. The United East India Company. So right. um, it's the Dutch equivalent of the British East India, East India Company. Company. And this building was founded in, in 1606 and it is added to over the course of the succeeding decades. So it's not finally finished until the 1660s. And if modern capitalism has a birthplace, this is it. Right. And so this building is simultaneously a, a great administrative center. It's a warehouse. Um, it's an auction room. And, you know, the company is, is Dutch-wide. Right. So there are other East India companies in other cities. But Amsterdam is where meetings of all the various uh, council the directors, yeah. The directors of the company come from across the Dutch provinces because it is the, the biggest and the wealthiest. So then there's the question, well, why Amsterdam? I mean, this is the subject of a podcast in and of itself, isn't it? The Dutch East India Company. But the fascinating thing is that basically Amsterdam is copying, is it copying Antwerp? Is that right? Well, it kind of is copying Antwerp, but but, but essentially what happens is that um, we, we mentioned before that Antwerp gets sacked by the Spanish. Yeah. And so Calvinist merchants from Antwerp come here and they bring with them both their commercial practices and their taste in architecture. So this is kind of quite Antwerp in its look. Yeah. And the other thing that they bring with them is an addiction to gambling. So there's a fabulous passage in uh, Simon Sharma's Embarrassment of Riches, the, the, the great kind of modern history in English of, of the Dutch golden age, where he, <laughs> he says, the Flemish city in its day had been famous for its addiction to gambling. And in this too, its Dutch stepdaughter followed suit. Wages were made on every conceivable opportunity from the outcome of a siege to the sex of an impending baby. They were made on the street in taverns at home in barges. The stakes could be a house full of furniture or a tankard of ale. And he makes the kind of the wonderful suggestion that the, that, that this Calvinist obsession with gambling is almost a kind of um, a subconscious summing of the nose that the kind of Calvinist ideas of predestination that, um, oh, right. that everything yeah. has been chosen, that you can take a stand against what is doomed to happen. Yeah. Um, and in a way, the founding of the VOC, the, um, the Renigda Ustindische Company, is, is the expression of, of probably what is the biggest and ultimately the most lucrative gamble in the whole of Dutch history, which is, Dominic, yeah. and, and I'm, I'm sure this will upset you because you're a huge lover of Portugal, aren't you? Yeah, Lucifile. That it was possible for the Dutch to stage a very, very, literally aggressive takeover of Portugal's global trading network because the Dutch are following the course that the Portuguese right. had blazed. To the Dutch... In the late 16th, early 17th century, Portugal seems absolutely a kind of, you know, a global titan. It's the Portuguese who've really set up the first global trading empire, as we know, you, yeah. know, you, know, you know, much better than me. But there are Dutch observers who are working out that actually the power and the prestige of Portugal's trading system isn't all that it might be. And there's one guy in particular, a guy called um, Jan Huygen van Lischotten. Who, um, Tom, do you speak du fluent Dutch? <laughs> yeah. Any Dutch, any Dutch <laughs> listeners to the podcast, please we'll be address <laughs> all your complaints to Tom and not to me. Well, I think you're, you're complicit in this. <laughs> we both dabble our fingers in the blood. And Van Linschotten has a kind of very cool CV. So he's been um, assistant to the Archbishop of Goa right. in India, which okay. is quite, I mean, yeah. quite impressive for, yeah. you know, for a Dutchman. For a Dutchman. Um, and then he comes back and he gets shipwrecked on the Azores, which is also Portuguese islands, and he gets yeah. stuck there for two years. Right. And he took full advantage of this to um, basically 
kind of take notes on, on how the right. Portuguese do things. Right. And in 1595, he publishes a book, which is basically one of the great travel books ever written. But from the point of view of Dutch capitalists, one of the most useful travel books ever written right. because it details yeah. pretty much everything about how Portugal's empire works. And basically, what he's saying is that anyone who, who wants to kind of aspire to take over from the Dutch, you know, they need ships. The Dutch have that in Amsterdam. Uh, they need the ability to build ships, you know, churn them out. Again, yes. Amsterdam yes. has that. You know, they need to know their way around the seas. The Dutch have that. And they need lots of money. And again, Amsterdam is starting to pick that up. And so <laughs> basically in 1602, when the VOC is founded and the Dutch Republic gives them um, a monopoly um, over the trade with Asia. They are in pole position and they move in. And I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, Dominic, but they, <laughs> they basically... We talked about this as the First World War, didn't we? I mean, the yeah. Dutch-Portuguese War. Yeah. And they basically take over the Portuguese trading networks. Yeah. So this is the... We're talking about the East Indies, obviously, hence the name, in particular, spices. Basically. But Brazil as well. I mean, it's, it's right. so that, that is absolutely why we've described this as the First World War. Yeah. And the Dutch emerged basically triumphant from that. Right. Um, and they end up... You know, the, this this town perched on a stretch of bog <laughs> on the margins of the North Sea, they end up with this globe-spanning trading empire. Yeah. And what they do even more than the Portuguese had done is to buy up goods and not just bring it back to Amsterdam, but also sell it to other places across, you know, the various kind of areas of Dutch right. control in the world. So you will, you know, they'll sell spices from Indonesia in Arabia, um, carpets from Persia in New Amsterdam, Right. Uh, you know, the future New York, um, they'll sell Chinese porcelain to India. Yeah. Um, and also what they're doing is that they are encouraging people in the various portions of the world to bend and adapt their production to suit the needs of Dutch yeah. and ultimately European consumers. So it's the start of the process by which the global economy comes to be distorted and changed to reflect the demands of European yes. consumers. So even, even a country like Japan, which famously has chucked the Europeans out and refuses to have anything to do with it, the, the only Europeans that they have dealings with are the Dutch. So to bring this back to Amsterdam, where we are now, at the center of this massive growing global network is, the city, is this city where right. we're in. And this becomes one great warehouse. Yes. So I think that it blazes the path for, for, for capitalism in two ways. The first is that it absolutely makes the people who live in Amsterdam consumers in a way that that simply hadn't been the case. This is a, across all classes. So obviously the, the, the goods have to be brought back and physically stored. And yeah. so this is part of what this house is. Um, so you have more, more commodities available and for sale concentrated in one place than had ever been the case before in human history. Right. In this, in this so spot. So between pepper, spices, porcelain. Pepper, porcelain, I mean, tea and coffee. So right. it's the Dutch who are influencing the Europe-wide taste for tea and coffee. Yeah. So it's it's to the Dutch that the British owe their taste for tea. I mean, yeah. again, it's something we may not want to acknowledge. But the but, Dutch tea is rubbish. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> but but even so, so in um, in Rembrandt's house, which isn't far from where we're standing, um, you know, there are drawings of of alligators and of armadillos. Right. So they're all kind of wild animals being brought back as well. Yeah. So that he can sketch them. So. It's on an absolutely stupefying scale. And Descartes, who we mentioned before, who comes here and, and spends much of his life here, he says that um, you know, there is nowhere else in the world where, where you can find more commodities and where the curiosity to consume is more stimulated 
Right. So he's, he's, he's kind of fascinated by this. And he absolutely has the sense that he is looking at something that is completely new. So it's, it's kind of an amazing, amazing moment in global history. Yeah. Considering where it's going to end up, this is, this is basically where it starts. But the other thing that Amsterdam is doing is it's turbocharging financial industry. Right. So the VOC sells shares. Yeah. And it's not selling shares in expeditions, individual expeditions. Which people it, had been buying beforehand. Right. And which is happening in England at this time. Yes. They're selling shares in the company itself. And the, the shares, the price of the shares are not fixed, which means that once you've bought the shares, you could then sell them on, which means that you can then start to speculate in them. So basically, this again, this is where kind of share dealing is born. So people are, I mean, the Amsterdam stock market people are buying and selling shares in companies, which again is, is a complete novelty. Yeah, and so the Amsterdam stock market, the bourse, is built, um, I think, six years after the founding of the VOC. And it basically exists as something that is designed to be distinct from the rest of the city, so governed by its own rules. And again, you know, when we look at the workings of financial markets and the impact that they have on our kind of everyday life, again, this is where this sense of finance as something invisible, powerful, separate from us, yet able to influence us, almost like a kind of Greek god. Right. This is where it has its birth. Yeah. Um, so there are very precise rules governing it. It's the only place um, in the whole city that is licensed to deal shares. You can only buy and sell shares between noon and two o'clock. And right from the beginning, you are getting the kind of behavior that we would recognize now. So there are crazes, there are investors running in desperate to sell shares, to buy shares. And basically the behavior of people who are dealing in shares is, is so undignified that the very rich, the kind of the, the fathers of the city will employ brokers to do it for them. So talking of undignified behavior, Tom, a huge part of tourists have come in, so you have to compete with them now. Okay, well, that's fine. But, but, but you can you but, can, no, we can We can do that. Yeah, of course you can. So you've got um, you know, this separate place. You've got brokers running around kind of screaming and shouting and yelling. And also you have scandals right from the beginning. So um, famously, there's a guy called Isaac Lemaire who is um, born in uh, Flanders, early investor in the VOC, uh, gets gets expelled due to financial improprieties. And so he goes off to France and tries to persuade the French king to set up an East India company. Um, and he then sets up a consortium to sell shares in the VOC that they don't actually own. <laughs> so right. again, you know, this is short selling yeah. on the assumption that the French are going to set up a company and that this will therefore tank the, 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 the Dutch, VOC. The, the VOC. Right. But it doesn't because the French king doesn't go ahead with it. Um, and so they're stuck with all these shares that they haven't even bought. And so they, what they do is they set up rumors saying that um, the French king is going to set it up anyway. Yeah. There's a mass panic. All the shares get scaled. <laughs> so there's a collapse in the share price. And um, the Dutch authorities have to step in and they declare share manipulation illegal. Okay. I'm not entirely convinced that we explained that quite as, as lucidly as we could have done. But um, I think we should charge straight on anyway, because I think you're going to talk about tulips. I mean, basically, it's short selling. Yeah. And it's share manipulation. Yeah. And it's the need for financial regulation. All has come in within 10 years of the birth of this kind right. of th th this concept of, of share dealing. Yeah. But yes, of course, the most famous of all the um, financial uh, developments... Oh, don't get run over by this man with his bike. <laughs> but yes, of course, the most famous of all the, um, the, <laughs> the, the financial initiatives that um, the, the Dutch develop is um, speculative bubbles. Right. Uh, namely tulips. So tulips, so there's a great craze. I mean, tulip mania, we'll do a whole podcast about tulip mania. So 
Um, but there's a huge craze for tulips, isn't there? Loads of people spend all their money on tulips and it all goes horribly wrong. Yeah, so these are luxury items. The Dutch love their gardens. And tulips are imported from the Ottoman Empire by yeah. traders. And there's kind of complete mania. And the mania is is one that's across Europe, but it becomes heightened to an astonishing, unprecedented degree in the Dutch Republic because the wealth and the opportunities for dealing in them are so much more advanced and than aren't anywhere just else. Dealing in the tulips, they're dealing in tulip derivatives, yes. which is <laughs> which anticipates so many um, stock market bubbles and all that sort of stuff. Exactly, to come. and again, it becomes apparent to the um, to the authorities in Amsterdam that um, disaster threatens. So they step in and bring the price of tulip jack, and there's an almighty crash. Right. So to recap what we were saying, we will definitely come back and we'll do an episode about the Dutch East India Company. At some point in the future, we will do an episode about tulip mania because that is a brilliant subject. But Tom, you can stand down because we are now going to close this episode and we will be resuming our journey around Amsterdam next time. Now, remember, Tom, Wise have created a travel guide to Amsterdam that includes many of the locations that you've talked about in today's episode. So for a nice souvenir, you might want to look at it yourself. Um, now, to learn more, about how you can travel like a historian and spend like a local. Travel like a historian, Just spend like, like a local. TV's Tom Holland. Visit wise.com slash restishistory or click the link in today's episode description. And Dominic, it's wonderful, isn't it, that we are being sponsored by um, a global company Investing in finance, and that's exactly what we've just that's been exactly talking about. That's exactly the theme about. of this episode. So without this house, we would have no wise, and what a terrible thing that would have that been. That would be terrible. And on that bombshell, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye.